So we are in this series uh, called Erosion. It's these aspects, these failures um, in our lives that really keep us from um, having the impact that God has called us to have in the world. And as we dive through the book of Isaiah, we see over and over these different circumstances or really sins that creep up into our life and, and affect us deeply. And the narrative we're going to look at today comes in Isaiah chapter 5. And in this chapter, Isaiah actually gives us a love song. It's not even a parable or a fable. It's, it's this love song. It's a song about God's love for us and our brokenness. And the, the story is really a picture of a vineyard. And it's the story of a, an individual who goes out and decides to start a vineyard. So he goes and he, he finds this choice hill, this fertile hill. And I don't know exactly what that must have been, but I would imagine it was in a valley surrounded by other great vineyards of the area. And probably every morning the, the fog would roll in off the Mediterranean and, and the dew would settle in on these hillsides and would water the grapes. And once he purchased this hill, he went out and, and began to prepare the soil. He started by digging ditches and trenches to drain the water and to provide irrigation for his plants. And then he and his team went through and removed all the stone off of this rocky desert mountainside, this hill, and probably gathered them to the edges and, and built walls out of the stone. After he'd gotten all the soil prepared and everything ready, he went out and bought um, vines that had been proven to produce. These are direct clones from the great vineyards of the area. He buys these vines and he brings them to his vineyard and they plant these and take good care of all of these vines. And he looks out over his vineyard and, and he knows that he wants to protect his investment. So him and his team, they build a watchtower right in the middle of this hill so that especially near harvest season, he can employ somebody around the clock, 24 hours a day to sit in this guard tower and keep watch over the vineyard to make sure that, that nobody comes in to steal his grapes. And as he looks at these tiny little shoots, these tiny little vines, he starts to imagine the, the wine that he's going to produce. The, what this is going to be for him and his family and, and the celebrations, the festivals that they're going to be able to, to do now as a result of this wine. So they go out to the, the middle of the vineyard and they decide to dig a wine vat. To do that, they first they scrape off all the topsoil and they get down to the bedrock, to this limestone bedrock. And then the laborers process with pick and axe and hammer, they chisel out two vats. The first vat or pool um, the workers would have stomped the grapes, you know, and they would have crushed the grapes. And then there would have been channels in this limestone that would funnel all that juice into another vat where it would ferment and be bottled up. And so this is the story that we see this perfectly prepared vineyard. And the owner, he comes back kind of probably near harvest time. He's ready to, to see uh these grapes that he's so excited to see. And when he comes back to his vineyard, what he discovers is, is while he's been gone, wild grapes have seeded in his vineyard. And instead of having these plump, you know, juicy grapes, perfect for making wine, what he has are these small, bitter berries, really. These almost poisonous berries. They were so nauseous. And they've taken over his entire vineyard, and there's nothing he can do with it. And Isaiah kind of takes a moment out of the, the love song here at this point, and he, he really makes it clear that 
what more could this man have done? He did everything he needed to do to prepare this soil, to, to make these vines succeed, and yet they failed. So then the, the owner of this hill becomes angry and he goes and he destroys all the hedges and the walls that are surrounding this vineyard. And he commands all of his workers, don't do anything else. Let's let all the thorns and the thistles grow up. And in a couple of years, this hillside will look just like every other barren hillside out in this wilderness. And even more, he commands that it doesn't rain on this hill, proving that this story isn't really about a farmer. It's not really about an owner of a vineyard. This story is about God. And we are the vineyard. And we've allowed wild grapes or sin and moral failures to creep into our life. And instead of producing the beautiful, rich fruit that God has called us to produce, fruit that makes an impact in our world, that our lives have been filled with bitter, poisonous things that can't be used for anything. So today we're going to look at how moral failures can become erosion um, in our life. Right on. Good morning. I said first service. I should have just filmed the whole sermon that way. We could have just gone home, right? Well, it's a, it's a powerful image, isn't it, of this vineyard that has gone wild. And it's a, it's a picture of us. And, and so this morning, as we kind of look at these things that erode our impact in our life, I think it's really helpful for us to look at what are these, these sins, these moral failures, these wild grapes that creep up into our life and um, really pull us away from what God has planned us for, what God has designed us Four. Um, the, the next, so that's kind of the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter five. And then the, the next quite a few verses really outlines some pictures, some kind of portraits of what a life looks like that has been corrupted by these moral failures or has been seeded with wild grapes. And it gives us this series of woes, okay? Um, and we're going to actually look at it in the New Living Translation, and it translates the word woe as how sorrow, or so sorrow for those. In other words, this warning for those whose life reflects these. And they're pretty extreme examples. And, it, and at first, you might look at these examples um, and kind of go, well, that's not me. Um, but I think as we look deeper at them, what we'll see is reflections of these truths in our own lives, and, and they stand as really a warning. I know when I first read this, though, my first reaction was to just kind of point at, like, whatever villain celebrity, you know, was kind of in my mind and go, wow, how amazing is this that Isaiah so many years ago wrote this for the Weinsteins of the world or the Kardashians or whatever politician you want to fill in the blank there. Uh, but I think the problem is when we read Scripture just to point to other people's failures, it gives us this, this false sense of self-righteousness. You know, it allows us to read these very convicting passages of Scripture and not to see what God is speaking to us, but just to see what God might be telling other people. And so I want to caution us against that this morning, to, to really look at this and to read this with the prayer of God. Okay, what are you trying to show me? Another thing, though, that's good for us to keep in mind is the book of Isaiah is a very pointed book. It's a very uh, convicting book. And it's a book, actually, that's filled with judgment that, that probably makes us 
pretty uncomfortable. But it also is the most quoted book in the New Testament talking of Jesus, the Messiah. And so as we read this, it's this constant ebb and flow throughout the book of this is the judgment that you deserve and our hope is in the Messiah, is in Jesus who is coming, who will take on our punishment, who will take on this judgment. So as we read this, as we we look through these things, there's that, that constant reminder. And I think there's a parallel passage in the New Testament where Jesus describes himself as the vine and us being the branches. And he says, if you want to bear good fruit, abide in me. And so to kind of mix these two illustrations together, if if today we look at our lives and we say, yeah, I do have some of these seeds of wild grapes in my life, the answer is not just to go weeding in our lives, but is to draw near to Jesus and to, to seek him more in our lives. So one more thing before we jump into the passage. Um, We're going to go ahead and read today out of the New Living Translation. We typically read out of the English Standard Version or the ESV. And that's a more literal translation. It's a more accurate translation. But the NLT translates more concepts. And so um, for the sake of what we're trying to do, it just makes this passage read a lot easier. And it'll allow us to cover a bit more ground this morning. So if you want to open your Bible, it might the wording might be slightly different, uh, or you can read it along on the screen. Uh, we're going to start in Isaiah. We're going to start uh, in verse 7, Isaiah 5, 7. Okay, so this kind of wrapping up the passage that was described in the, in the video there. It says, The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's army. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. What sorrow for you who buy up house after house and field after field until everyone is evicted and you live alone in the land. But I have heard the Lord of heaven's army swear a solemn oath. Many houses will stand deserted. Even beautiful mansions will be empty. Ten acres of vineyard will not produce even six gallons of wine. Ten baskets of seed will not yield or will yield only one basket of grain. What sorry for those who get up early in the morning looking for a drink of alcohol, who spend long evenings drinking wine to make themselves flaming drunk. They furnish wine and lovely music at their grand parties, lyres and harps and tambourines and flutes, and they never think about the Lord or notice what he's doing. So as we read these first couple of warnings, I think the erosion check for me in these passages is really what occupies my dreams, what occupies my life's pursuit, my hopes, the things that I'm passionate about, the things that I'm pursuing. Because we see in these examples that moral erosion occurs when my life's goal is a pursuit of things and experiences. Clearly, we all need things. We all have experiences. But what happens when my life's focus becomes a pursuit of those things? And I think in this, we see that there's this moral erosion, this sliding that happens in our life. So there's two woes here. The first is of an individual, an investor, who goes out and he buys house after house and vineyard and field after field. And he keeps buying all this property. But with buying these properties, we can assume that his investments are turning out not quite what he's hoping for. So he has to buy more properties and acquire more to get the same profit out of it. This is something we could all relate to, right? You make more money, you have more bills, 
So then you have to make more money to pay your bigger bills, and pretty soon it's a cycle, right? And that's kind of what we, we see this individual in. But what it's done in his life is this pursuit of things has become this greed, this selfishness that's really totally distracted him from what God wanted to do in his life. Instead of producing a life of good fruit, of, of love and peace and joy, he's produced a life of selfishness, of greed. Then there's the opposite side or kind of a different perspective of, I think, really the same problem. And this is a person that, that wakes up early in the morning to start drinking. And they get the party going all day long. And their life's pursuit is about this experience. It's about getting the best band. It's about getting the people together to play music, to have this party. And again, it's equally as selfish. And I think equally as an act of, of greed Instead of getting up early to pray, they get up early to start drinking. Instead of having music to to worship God, it's just music to facilitate more partying. And the punishment for for both of these individuals really is is very similar. It's that they kind of get what they want, right? They, They get their life's pursuit. The first person has bought up house after house, and he finds himself sitting alone in a neighborhood that he now owns by himself. The second, the partier, after spending a life of pursuing the party, the party comes to an end. And he and all that he's partied with, this is in some of the verses that we didn't get to, are are in exile. And it says that the grave is now hungry and thirsty for them. And, And it made me ask the question, what if I got all the things I dream about? All my life's goals and pursuits What if all those things came true for me? Would they satisfy me? Would they make me happy? I've got this dog, and I've I've told, I might have even told this story before, but first service was awesome. They didn't uh, nag me about it. So if you've heard this story before, be like first service, and you could just say, oh, I never heard that story before, okay? But I got this dog, and my dog loves to chase things, squirrels, cats, you know, small children, whatever. She just loves to to chase things. And one time we were hiking in the Ohlone wilderness and there was this baby horse and this mom. They were just kind of out roaming around the, the mountains over there in the Sonol area. And um, my dog takes off after the baby horse and she kind of corners it. She gets it. She doesn't bite it or anything, but she kind of gets it. Her tail's wagging and she's, she's so excited that she's kind of achieved her life's pursuit just to have mama horse come over and just start kicking the tar out of her, right? It was, and my dog is like running and scared and hiding behind me. And, and here it is, she gets what she wants or what she thinks she wants only to find it really as something that's dangerous for her. And, and I think of that myself, that this passage shows us that not only is it hollow for us to pursue these things, but that these things can actually be um, sinful, that it can, be, it can drive us to greed and to selfishness and to, to not care for other people. It's really hard to love your neighbor as yourself when you're just trying to buy up their house so you can evict them, right? It's hard to worship God when you spend your life just trying to stay in the party, just trying to live in the experience. And, and verse 16, which we didn't get to, it, it talks about Isaiah Um, Isaiah describes God. He says, all these things are going to go away, but the things that are going to remain are the righteousness and the holiness and the justice of God. Which 
really kind of is this next point that I think a life of impact is a life that pursues, or that's life's goal. Sorry, let me try it again here. A life has impact when my life pursues goal, the goal of, man, I can't read this. It's right in front of me. Here we go. Try it one more time. Third time's a charm. A life has impact when my life's goal is misspelled on my paper. Whatever. Put it on the screen. People can read it. All right, there we go. My life has impact when I pursue the things and experiences of God, right? So thank you. Woohoo! I got it all written wrong here. Um, but, but what am I finding my value and my worth in? And what would it look like if my life, my pursuit was more about pursuing the things of God, was more about experiencing God, was more about being overwhelmed with him than it was by being overwhelmed with my desires, with the things I want? What if I pursued God in the same way that a greedy person pursues money? What if I pursued God in the same way that an alcoholic longs for his next drink or her next drink? What would that life look like? And I think that would be a life that would be pleasing to God, a life that would, would bear the fruit, that would begin to reflect the God we worship, a God that instead of bearing, or a person's life that instead of bearing fruit of bitterness and selfishness and greed, we'd begin to bear the fruit of God, which is love and graciousness and righteousness and justice. So kind of give you, I know this is an abstract thought, but maybe give some practical just ideas. What what if we're leading up to Thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving's next week, and a lot of us are not naturally the most thankful people, right? Some of us are, but what if we spent some time each day just giving thanks to God for all the things he's done in our life. It would begin, I think, to change our perspective. So maybe that's something for you, kind of leading up to Thanksgiving. If, if maybe you spent five or ten minutes every day just thanking God and allowing your life's goal, your pursuits to be experiencing him. Or maybe um, another option is, I know a lot of us spend a lot of time dreaming and planning for our future, Right? We're kind of in that time in my own family where we're resetting our budget for the year and planning and all that stuff. And it just, it made me think this week, what if I spent some of that same energy planning on how I could serve and be used by God in the next five or 10 years? What would that look like? What about the time that I have? What could I volunteer in? Who could I serve? You know, that might be an option for us. Another thought is just, we come here and we worship and we sing every week. And it's so easy, at least for me, and I would assume for you, to come and to just kind of sing the words, to clap along and go with it. What if we just spent some time in those songs, and hopefully you're doing this already, but just being overwhelmed by who God is, by experiencing him, being grateful for him. So let's go ahead and keep reading. The passage keeps going, gives us some more uh, kind of erosion checks, if you will. Uh, So starting in verse 18, Isaiah 18 here, says, What sorrow for those who drag their sins behind them with ropes made of lies, who drag wickedness behind them like a cart. They even mock God and say, hurry up and do something. We want to see what you can do. Let the Holy One of Israel carry out his plan. We want to know what it is. What sorrow for those who say evil is good and good is evil, that light is dark and dark is light, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. 
What sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and they think of themselves so clever. What sorrow for those who are heroes at drinking wine and they boast about the alcohol they can hold and they take bribes and they let the wicked go free and they punish the innocent. Some more convicting words, aren't they? And and as I read this, I think the, the erosion check in this passage is What actions do I do or have I done that require some moral manipulation? That that in order for me to feel good about the things I do require me to talk myself into it or talk other people into it. See, I think moral erosion occurs when in my arrogance, I seek to shape my own moral system. To me in this passage, the the verse that is most somber, sobering to me is, is this. What sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and think of themselves as so clever. How many of you sometimes think of yourself as clever? Don't raise your hand. I do sometimes, right? And I'm pretty clever when it comes to defining and making up moral decisions for myself. I can twist things and I can, I can feel really good about doing pretty much whatever it is I want to do. We've all gotten pretty good at this over the course of our lives, that, that we can kind of understand morality the way we want it to be seen. We learned this as a young age. I, I have a three-year-old, and the other day my wife was trying to put our, our three-year-old to bed. And so she, she tells our three-year-old, she goes, okay, Isabel, go get in bed. I'm going to go do something with your sister. I'm going to come back, and I want you to be in bed. So she comes back a couple minutes later, and my three-year-old has moved this giant stuffed animal snake thing we have into her bed. She's taken it off the floor, put it in her bed, And then she's standing there, and when my wife walks into the room, she goes, I'm scared, Mom, I can't get to bed. There's a snake in my bed, right? (laughs) And so in her little mind, she's figured out a way that she cannot obey my wife but have a good excuse because there's a scary snake in her bed. And she's three. And some of you are older than three, and you've had a lot more years of practicing this, right? And you have gotten, I have gotten so sophisticated at understanding my moral code that I can justify pretty much whatever it is I want to justify. And I think that's the picture we see here. And the warning that we see here in this passage is, man, don't think you're so clever that you can, you can make up what you want. And so it goes through and it gives us these these pictures here, these images. So um, let's kind of go through the different ones. The first image here is of an individual who is dragging this heavy cart around them with them wherever they go. And it says the ropes of that cart are lies and the cart itself is filled with sin. Now, I know a lot of us don't want to call ourselves sinners. I don't like calling myself that. But there's always sin kind of right behind me. Can you relate to that at all? I'm not a liar, but there's always some lies that I can pull from if I ever need them. And I kind of carry them with me. And there, there are times in my life where I especially like to go to that cart to find those lies, to find those manipulations, to, to just kind of make life feel better. I'm a a person that likes to do lots of different things at the same time, and I I sometimes commit to doing lots of different things. And at times, that means I drop the ball on different things or maybe even lots of different things. And I hate letting people down. That's one of the things that I I just, it 
it eats at me. So whenever I drop the ball and I let somebody down, my first, my gut reaction is always to go to my cart of lies and not really lie, but to just kind of work out a way that I wasn't wrong, that I didn't really drop the ball, that it was somebody else's fault. And I think in that, that I carry that with me. And I can justify those things. I can say, well, I'm just making it so nobody gets hurt. I don't want somebody to think that I didn't care enough about them to do this thing I said I would do. So I just told them that this or that. And we see where just we can kind of twist the reality of what is true and what is, what is not. And, and what's scary to this about this is this person then, too, says they turn to God and they say, oh, hey, God, where are you at? Show me your plan. And I think how often when I get myself into trouble, when I get kind of twisted up into something, I shout out for God, God, can you fix this for me? Show me how you can show, fix this. And not, not, hey, God, fix me, <laughs> right? It's, it's almost always fix this. So then there's another picture we see here. That's, that's the first one. Another picture is of an individual who has manipulated morality to the point where they, they can't even tell the difference between right and wrong anymore. They've so, so often they said, no, this is right and this is wrong or that's the other way. And they could say, oh, this is a white stand and I am seven feet tall. And, you know, they've just, they've mixed up what truth is so much. And it's become troubling and dangerous. Now, I've noticed when I was thinking about this, I really was tempted to think of other people who have made moral decisions that I would identify as sinful and it was so easy for me to point to them and say, oh, this passage is about those people because they do these things and they feel good about it. And again, I think we, we really need to be careful to, to point the fingers inward and say, okay, God, what are those things that I might even feel totally good about? I might be able to sleep great at night, but really our, our sin, our outside of your will, are, are not what you want for my life. And to see those things as ugly and dangerous because they can, they, they can be so dangerous in our life. When I first started dating my wife, we, um, I had this plan. I was going to take her up uh, kind of above Salem, the city we're from. And we're going to go up onto this like lookout point and look out over the beautiful lights of the city. And it's going to be so romantic, right? So, um, but only vehicle I had at the time was a motorcycle. So she loads on the back of my motorcycle and we kind of split up the riding gear I had. She took the gloves. I took a helmet. I don't know how we did it. You know, we we didn't have quite enough gear for the two of us. And uh, we start heading up the mountain. And as we get going, the higher we get, the colder it gets, the, you know. And, and we keep asking each other, we're like, hey, honey, are, are you okay? Are you warm? And we'd kind of lie to each other to be romantic because that's what you do. Uh, and we oh, no, no, I'm hot. It's so warm back here. You're just putting off all sorts of body heat, whatever it is we're selling each other. And as we're getting up there, like there was literally snow on the sides of the road, not on the road, but it was, it was cold. And, and I was so cold that I was afraid when we got to the top that I could even stop the motorcycle because my, I wasn't sure my legs would hold up the weight of the bike, right? And, and here this, you see this lying to each other is actually was dangerous in that sense. And that's just silly. That's young love, whatever you want to call it. But how much more dangerous does it get when we tell ourselves we're doing what's right when we're not. And, and we get to the point where we don't even know what's right, what's wrong. And I think we all do this in big ways and in small ways in, in our life. There's, there's one more caution or woe here that we see 
um, that's kind of connected with all this. And, and that's of the individual who thinks that they're a hero. It says, that, it says the words they use, that they're a hero. But their, their heroic thing is that they can get really drunk. And in their drunkenness, they pervert justice. They let wicked people go free, and they let the innocent suffer. And, and I just think that's such a picture of how convoluted we can get in our minds. That we can, we can be, think of ourselves as superheroes when all we are doing is, is getting drunk and hurting other people. And again, you might look at that and go, cool, that's not me. I'm not a drunk judge. This is about those people. But what are those, those areas of your life that you are so confident in, yet God is saying, no, your life is being undercut by this moral erosion, these things in your life that are broken, and I desire you to turn to me. And so if, if moral erosion happens when we develop and twist our own moral system, that in our arrogance, in our confidence, we think we can do it better than God, then I think the opposite is also true, that a life of impact is a life that seeks God's moral system for my life. A life that calls out to God and says, God, I need you. Teach me. And in every decision, big or small, we are, we are going to God and searching out him and saying, teach me, is this right? Is this wrong? Give me the strength. Give me the bravery to make the right decision even when it might reflect bad on me, even when it might hurt me, even when it it might cost me greatly. Verse 7 of this chapter um, is really troubling, right? As God looks out over the vineyard and he's using it to describe Israel and Judah, but I don't want those to be the words that God says to me. Where God looks at me and he says, Nate, I have searched your life for justice, but instead I've just seen violence. I've just seen oppression. Nate, I look at your life and I long to see righteousness, but all I hear is people crying out in pain, the lives that you've hurt, the people you've hurt. And yet I know that that is part of my story. That is part of our story, that we have allowed these seeds of wild grapes to creep up into our life that none of us here have lived God's moral code for our life. And I think that's really where the hope of Isaiah comes in, the hope of the Messiah, the hope of Jesus is. That our impact, our greatest impact, that my life has impact when Jesus is impacting me. And I think that's the place, when we look at our lives and we say, okay, I've got these seeds of wild grapes, I've got this sin in my life, some that I don't even see yet, some that I can't even identify, but I know it's there. The answer to that, I don't think it's just sinless because that's, it's incredibly difficult. I think the answer is turn to Jesus, find our meaning and our purpose and our hope in the Messiah. Allow him to begin to point out these things, allow him to shape our morality to where we reflect him more and more. There's a, a verse that I kind of alluded to already that's in John 15. And if you want to open your Bibles, uh, you can. We're going to read this one um, out of the ESV version. Uh, John 15. And uh, Jesus, again, is using this vine illustration, but he's using it of himself. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear much fruit, or does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes 
that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What hope this is, right? As we look at the, the judgment of the, the sin of our lives, that the answer, the calling for Jesus today is abide in me, experience me, know me, allow me to transform your life. And I think as we, we are on this pursuit, as we are seeking Jesus, this is the hope that we have. This is the calling. It's an action. It's not just something that we passively do. It's the, the step of saying, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to walk with you. And, and if you're here today, and um, I know a, a lot of us have made a decision in our life. We've said, yes, I trust in Jesus. Maybe this morning is just another time as we sing this next worship song um, to say, okay, Jesus, again, I, I've said this before. I've said it a hundred times. I trust you again. Teach me where I'm broken. Teach me where I'm wrong. Teach me where I need to find my value and my worth in you. Teach me where I'm not walking with you. Um, and maybe this is a time that you've never said this before, right? You're, you're here for a variety of different reasons. And maybe today is the day, the first day that you say, okay, Jesus, I'm gonna trust you for the first time. So I think the band is around somewhere. They're gonna come on up and we're gonna, we're gonna sing a song. And during this time, um, just use this time. Use this time as reflection. Use this time um, as commitment. Uh, if you want, you can come down here to the front and people can pray with you if you want that. If you want to just pray in your seat, that's cool too. Um, but, but leave here today kind of in, in that commitment saying, God, mold me, change me, teach me. Let me go ahead and pray for us as we we'll wrap up. God, you are truly a good God, that you have loved us, that you've forgiven us, that you've given us your plan, your direction, you've taught us what is right and what is wrong, and you continue to do that, that you haven't just left us, you haven't abandoned us to figure it out on our own. So God, I pray that we live lives that reflect you, lives that are filled with justice, lives that are filled with hope and meaning and love, um, and not filled with bitterness and selfishness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.